Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by senior analyst Jessica Liu to explore the future of Facebook. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the big question in the sky. Facebook has been in the news for a while now, and not for the best of reasons. Um, is this the beginning of the end, or is this just a part of the story? Yeah, I think it's just a part of the story. Uh, but before that story begins, I like to always clarify with the audience uh, the differences between, or the difference between Facebook Inc. versus Facebook App, because I find that the two terms are used uh, interchangeably when. Um, really, we're just talking about here the Facebook holding company or the parent company that is inclusive of all of its apps and services, uh, Facebook app, Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp, and all of the other apps and services and hardware um, versus just, you know, Facebook app or Big Blue, as they call it. So I guess for the for the rest of this podcast, if we say Facebook for simplification, we'll just refer to the Facebook holding company or the big corporate entity. Yeah, so this means Facebook Inc. includes Instagram and other properties that operate differently than the Facebook app. Absolutely, yes. So Facebook has, again, been in the news, uh, has not done so well in damage control. So how, how is this part of a story, and what story is it? Yeah, I think for Facebook, uh, it's really about the headline for me is it's short-term gain but long-term pain. I think we have to look at Facebook's outlook or Facebook's future in two timelines, the immediate short-term timeline and then the much longer-term timeline. Um, and we can explore how Facebook's actually going to be just fine in the short term and then talk about how it won't be so fine in the long term. So let's dig in there. And can we maybe start with the your your assessment of the sort of short-term time horizon or the gain piece of the equation? Yeah, so short-term... <laughs> It's no secret. 2018 was like a uh, greatest hits, but really worst hits record for Facebook. Um, they sustained uh, scandal after scandal, um, really with the, the watershed moment being the Cambridge Analytica reveal in March, April timeframe, um, you know, then followed by election manipulation by outside countries, perpetuating tyrannical governments in other countries, um, internal hiring of questionable political consultants. Um, those were sort of the big headline news. And then there was, of course, the smaller scandals, um, or I should say issues, like self-policing their own content and making decisions on that content, um, grading its own ad metrics and deciding what was good performance versus what was bad performance, which was problematic. Um, all of these scandals should certainly have brought down any mere mortal company, uh, but Facebook's been holding strong. Their user growth and their revenue are still climbing steadily. They climbed quarter over quarter and year over year um, in sort of typical or standard fashion. Um, and, and it's been a continued monstrous growth on both the user front and the ad revenue front. It's sustaining the punches or it's rolling with the punches. So underneath this, I have a demographic question, and I'm pointing at the Facebook app for a second, which is, you know, that serves an aging population. The Instagram and others serves a younger population. Is there anything about the demographics that changes, let's say, the midterm 
financial potential of Facebook or the fact that they they turn themselves into a portfolio company blunt that problem? Yeah, I think the fact that they've turned themselves, as you said, turned themselves into a portfolio company, a collection of apps and users, it has blunted or dulled that issue for them. I, I think the users are so interesting. So Facebook has this unique business structure. Most companies have one relationship that they really have to focus on, right? It's their relationship with their revenue-generating customers. Facebook, on the other hand, has two relationships, right? Users, um, who are its product, and advertisers, who are really its customers, right? The ones who are paying Facebook money. So from the user's perspective, to your point, Victor, that yes, there is sort of a spectrum of users across Facebook app and Instagram and WhatsApp, uh, and, and Facebook Messenger, which is tied so closely to Facebook apps. But by and large, their user body as a whole is still uh, healthy. I think what's really interesting to explore between users and advertisers, though, is that because users are sort of this, users are the lifeline, but I should say users are the lifeblood and advertisers are the lifeline, they really need to appease both parties. And so both of these parties, users and advertisers, have an immense amount of power. Users, I think, could actually impact Facebook the most profoundly, but unfortunately, their behaviors change so gradually, which is why short-term Facebook is doing just fine. And then similarly, advertisers could actually affect Facebook the fastest by stopping their spend on Facebook, you know, yanking their their ad spend and their ad campaigns. But advertisers are not going anywhere. They have marketing objectives in mind. They need to hit sales. They're not going to disappear off of Facebook unless the users disappear. So advertisers are also not going to impact Facebook in the short term as long as the users are there for uh, reach. So Jesse, what is, cause, uh, what is unique about that dynamic that you just stated? Because to me, that feels like a dynamic that most publishers today have to deal with, right? Their readership, the people who come to the site, and then also advertisers that they have to serve who are trying to, you know, gain access to a specific audience. So is there something unique about Facebook, or maybe they don't see themselves as a publisher, but more a tech platform, like that argument that that is different in this equation? I think for many years, Facebook has tried to say that they are not a publisher or not a media publisher and therefore should not be held to the same rules about content moderation or um, content ethics the way that media publishers have been. But the fact remains is, to your point, Jen, they are exactly like a publisher. They serve two masters, users and advertisers. And as such, uh, even though their content isn't generated from inside Facebook's walls, their content is generated from users or other content creators outside of Facebook, uh, with the exception of a few things like Facebook Watch exclusive programming, they are publishers. They are publishing content that maybe isn't their own, but they are publishing content and aggregating it in a centralized tech platform and serving two masters. So I don't see them as being different from media publishers in that way. It strikes me that there's a virtual monopolistic dynamic here, which is, to your point, if firms had done what Facebook has done and reacted as Facebook has reacted, you would see some form of outrage, as you have seen in, let's say, some of the TV outlets or media outlets when the advertisers pull. 
but you just don't see that same phenomenon on either side of the house. Is that talking to their market power or what is it about them that sort of, again, shields them from that dynamic? I think users are angry, um, but as, as I said earlier, they just change behavior so gradually. They're not going to suddenly mass exodus, you know, certainly not all what is the number now? Around 2.7 billion people who used uh, at least one of Facebook's apps last December. They're certainly not going to mass exodus. Um, I think user disengagement will be really gradual or it will be a user shift in engagement, meaning right. um, on the disengagement side, maybe, yes, lower consumer energy around the Facebook brand. You know, the less consumers will view Facebook app as a benefit. We're actually already starting to see that trend in our own consumer energy index. Uh, when we surveyed last year, uh, I believe it was 35% said in March 2018 that Facebook app has a positive impact on my quality of life. But that number actually dropped to 8% by the end of the year in December 2018. Um, and in that same time frame, I think our numbers said that 32% stated in March of 2018, I will use Facebook app less. And that number actually increased slightly to 39% in the same time frame. So by December 2018. Um, so it, it's a slow rate of change on that last piece. Um, but I think gradually we'll see that disengagement or, or I should say, and or we'll see shift in engagement, meaning we're already seeing younger users start to use social media differently. They're using it in more um, kind of ephemeral or private uh, ways, like through private messaging or small group messaging or using stories so that the content isn't, quote unquote, permanently on your record, at least not publicly. It's still on Facebook's hard drives or uh, on Facebook's uh, servers. But I think that the users are maybe not obviously impacted, but they are gradually uh, feeling less and less connected to Facebook, the brand. So that's users. Advertisers are a whole different story. But, but staying with users for a second, which is, I mean, you could you could argue there's a there's a monopolistic effect because of the network effect, meaning for someone to leave Facebook to go wherever, they have to leave with their network to have any parity to what they just experienced. There's almost little opportunity to bring your entire social network with you to name your destination. I mean, isn't isn't that part of this dynamic, which is where else would they go and to get that same thing, you know, rapidly? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the the question could be tweaked slightly to say, to, to ask actually, how much of your network do you want to take with you? I think what we're seeing increasingly is, especially with younger users, is they don't care to take their entire 800 Facebook friends or even their 500 Instagram followers. They just want to take their closest circle, their smallest group of you know close friends and family with them. So it's not so much about how big is your network. It's more it's, it's less a quantity question. It's more of a quality question. Who is in my network? How do I take them with me? That's all that matters. Um, again, particularly for younger audiences. So when I said earlier that the user behavior is gradual and we'll start to see sort of slow disengagement or a shift in engagement entirely, I think what I just described in terms of younger users using uh, social media more ephemerally and more privately um, signals that the network effect, or as you described, taking your whole network with you is less important. So... Do you think that part of the outcome of all this is that Facebook Inc. 
will create distance from Facebook app, meaning it will create some opacity as who owns what, and we'll start to see Instagram being more of its own, viewed as its own property, just because of the anchor that the Facebook app and all that it means in the marketplace is causing. No, I think actually the opposite. I think Facebook is actually working towards a consolidated and mega app experience, much like WeChat is in China. Um, And we can talk about what that means long-term and the implications of trying to become WeChat, but I think Facebook is actually shifting towards merging all of its properties. Um, It has already undergone or it has already started the process of unifying the back end of Facebook app, Instagram, uh, and Messenger, and possibly WhatsApp. So it's already started unifying the underlying code for those properties. Um, It already shares all of the ad targeting data across Facebook app and Instagram, as well as Messenger. Um, I think that the properties are becoming more cohesive rather than more distinct. Why do you think that's true? I mean, is that for cost efficiencies or do are users going to get some benefit from that in their minds? Uh, Facebook is trying to build, uh, again, a, a sort of mega mega app experience or super app experience like WeChat in China. Um, WeChat, it's China's most popular messaging app. It started as a messaging app. It has you know, 1 billion monthly users, pretty much, uh, what, two-thirds of China's population, I believe, is on WeChat. Um, but it's so much more than a messaging app. It has messaging and photo sharing. You can schedule appointments. You can manage your finances. You can uh, pay friends, pay businesses or companies. You can order car services. You can book your flights. You can go shopping. WeChat is the portal to the Internet. You can do everything you would normally do on the quote-unquote Internet within the WeChat app if you are inside China. So most of these social networks, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat – they look to WeChat as like the holy grail, the ultimate shining example of what it, what they would like to achieve. And so Facebook, over time, the last five, ten years, has been fully amassing features and functionalities and services to create a more end-to-end user experience to keep you trapped inside its properties. So sure, it started with, you know, uh, Facebook status sharing, and then it expanded into photo sharing and video sharing, and then you could chat with people in private environments on Messenger, and then you could actually pay your friends back um, if you needed, if you owed them money. You could, they did integrations with Uber, so you could order car, uh, order a car. They did integrations with Open Table, so you can make restaurant reservations. They created Facebook Marketplace, which was like their version of Craigslist. So you could buy and sell used goods or sell products. Um, You know, they are attempting to keep you immersed and engrossed in the Facebook holistic experience, no matter which app. And for them, creating this super environment where you never need to leave uh, is, is the goal because they ultimately want to increase your user time spent in uh, Facebook apps. So does that put them strategically in a collision course with Amazon and Google and everyone else that wants to do everything and essentially be your digital universe? I don't know if it puts them in a collision course or if you could just argue that the triumvirate, the oligopoly at this point of Facebook, Amazon, and Google 
people spend the majority of their time in these three environments. Um, when we asked in our consumer technographics data, uh, which websites do you visit weekly, Google's top at 86%, Facebook's second at 71%, and YouTube, which really Google, Google owns, is 53%. Um, Instagram is fifth at 40%. Um, now, Amazon's not on this list, but I'd be curious to see where they would fall. Um, so I, I don't know if it's a collision course so much as a, a narrowing down of choices of where you spend your time, and ultimately it will be in these top you know, three sites, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and all of their associated properties. Yeah. So Fatima Kettleblue has a concept of a, per, a personal digital twin, or a PDT, which sort of says at some point in time, human beings are going to hire a firm to govern or be a steward of their zero-party data, of their own data. Against that backdrop, do you see Facebook, Amazon, and Google competing with each other, or do you see them going down their own path, still just monetizing as much as they can on their own terms? I don't see any detente or accords happening between these three companies anytime soon. I think that the status quo of maintaining their own separate walled gardens of customer data will persist, um, especially in the short term. That data is way too valuable. So, you know, we can talk about the impact of regulation on Facebook, but Facebook is, by and large, collecting first-party data on its billions of users for multiple purposes. And even though they are perhaps shunting access or blunting access to that data from outside apps, uh, they still collect that data inside its walls. And that data is very valuable to Facebook. How they use that data, how they allow access to that data has definitely changed. But the fact remains or the fact that is unchanged is they're still collecting all of that data and they're certainly not going to just share it with uh, Google or Amazon. So before we move on to the question about regulation here, just want to revisit this concept of advertisers and, you know, sort of the the state of the state of the relationship between advertisers and Facebook today and while they're, why they're still participating in this um, environment? Yeah. To be blunt, advertisers have no morals. They Brands just really want to see results. They have marketing objectives. They need to meet those objectives. They need to achieve sales. And as long as Facebook has 2.7 billion users using at least one of its Facebook app, uh, they are not, the advertisers are not going anywhere. The, the, the number of eyeballs is too enticing for, for advertisers. So, while there may be a few advertisers out there who attempt to take a stand and maybe speak out about uh, Facebook's egregious behavior and yanking spend on the on the social network uh, or across the apps, there isn't critical mass in from advertisers trying to stop Facebook from behaving poorly. So users may change behaviors slightly over time. Advertisers will not change behaviors. So what is the role or what is the stance or position of the regulator in this current mix? So regulators have the most power to change Facebook from the top down, but regulators are also moving quite slowly. 
And while they move through so slowly, Facebook is just shoring up its assets in the in the interim. They're biding their time. And I, if I were a Facebook competitor, I'd be a little bit worried because not only as a Facebook competitor am I subject to regulation, just like the rest of the social networks, uh, I'd be pretty scared of Facebook because they they have very valuable assets and unique differentiators, and they're going to spend this interim period while they wait for regulators to move by squashing any of their sort of perceived vulnerabilities. They're very Facebook is unfortunately very large and very powerful. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Facebook still collects first-party data on its billions of users for multiple purposes. So the, a lot of the data that they collect is used for things like um, product features and services within its own ecosystem of apps. And it can get away with hiding that implicit consent in its very general user terms of service, which apply across its Facebook app. Um, and then conversely, you know, it's eliminating weaknesses by uh, cl clamping down on the flow of user data to outside apps. You know, they're cutting third-party app access to Facebook data. Uh, they've banned data onboarding. They've axed third-party data augmentation for ad targeting. So they're trying to really plug the holes of data pouring out of Facebook while still collecting all of that first-party data inside Facebook. Um, and another interesting point about Facebook's assets, I think a, a very often overlooked fact is that Facebook is the de facto internet in many developing countries. They have, um, they launched this initiative called internet.org, also known as Facebook Free Basics, um, in 65 countries across the world, like Zambia and Turks and Caicos. Um, and the point of internet.org or Facebook Free Basics is that it was, it was created with the intent of bringing internet access and benefits of connectivity to parts of the world that maybe lacked them. And so in these countries, Facebook is the internet. This is how users in those countries get online through their Facebook app, through their Facebook account. So the company, Facebook, is in this kind of very unique position to collect all this user data from these um, users in these 65 countries and also to influence those people and their governments. Um, so it's a little bit of a big brother scenario, quite frankly, yeah. uh, in, in, in these 65 countries. Staying with the regulator for a second, in the U.S., we're heading towards a presidential election and you have a one party that is running in part on either limiting the opportunities or breaking up these big entities. So let's, let's assume that breaking them up is going to be harder than not because it's not clear what the legality of that is. But limiting their future acquisitions is something that they can jump in on. Is, is that something that you're looking at in terms of future, the future opportunities for Facebook or limiting the future opportunities of Facebook? Yes. Great question. So I think we're now actually bleeding into the long term and what future's long term outlook looks like, which I think is bleak. So we talked earlier about Facebook attempting to become or to emulate WeChat in China, I think there is one glaring difference between Facebook and WeChat. It's the government. WeChat operates in a very uh, closed country <laughs> um, with a government that allows 
very unique businesses. It allows monopolies, right? Um, versus Facebook is operating in an environment that requires regulatory approvals. Um, you know, the, it, it works with global regulators, most notably in the U.S. and in Europe, um, and, and has to get permission. So in order to actually grow to WeChat-level status, Facebook is going to have to build on services, whether through acquisition, through mergers, through uh, organic growth. And global regulators are not going to easily approve further Facebook M&A activity. Um, and further, if, if to your point, Victor, antitrust regulation actually breaks up the company, Facebook is going to suffer this very slow asphyxiation if it has to rely only on its Facebook app or Messenger. Um, so I think regulators play a key role in blocking Facebook's desire to become a WeChat-like super app. And in that context, privacy, especially in EU, privacy takes a center stage. So you have two, two forms of privacy. Earlier in this discussion, you mentioned some of some folks moving towards more private experiences, keeping their walled gardens, the walls higher. And you have GDPR and the regulations coming out of California and ultimately across the globe. What does that do to Facebook's long-term um, opportunities? Does that does it pinch it? Does it make it better because they already have the data? Does that data age out? How does that play out? Yeah, Facebook is going to have to ask itself a very hard question. Do we enforce our new privacy vision that they have announced uh, at the expense of their advertising business? So they are trying to toe the line. They're, they're trying to eat their, have their cake and eat it too, really. They want to create a private environment and abide by all of the new privacy laws and keep consumers protected and users protected. But they make their money by ad targeting um, or by selling advertising. And more importantly, advertisers love the hyper-targeting abilities in social advertising. So they're trying, Facebook is trying to strike this impossible balance between, you know, growing users and time spent in its apps and knowing everything about those users so that they can hyper-target those users and fuel more advertising dollars, while at the same time, they're trying to build this singular privacy-first experience to appease all the privacy regulation. Um, this isn't going to work. The gamut of hyper-targeting of the uh, hyper-targeting capabilities that were available um, have are slowly diminishing and the inability of Facebook to use the data that it houses for hyper-targeting will only ramp up and this is going to hurt advertisers because uh, hyper-targeting is going to become more challenging and I think what that means actually long term is that um, social networks by and large, not just Facebook, are going to have to start moving away from hyper-targeting and actually start targeting more contextually, like media publishers do. So it's more about targeting groups who are interested in, I don't know, dogs or cars or clothes, or fashion. Um, and it becomes more about contextual um, targeting rather than hyper-targeting at a very granular level. Back to the future. Hmm, that's right. So do you, in your imagination, as you think through this, 
one could argue Facebook's privacy vision is a near-term reaction or overreaction to all the things that have happened over the last, let's say, 18 months. Turn the dial 18 months from now, do you think Facebook, to your point, they look hard at that. Do you, do you think that this is a overreaction and they'll come back to where they were because the, the business doesn't really allow for that decision to be made? Or how do you see this playing out? Because you, you're sort of talking about the idea of, I'm going to choke off my own business by my own policies, which is a reaction to the politics I'm in right now. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that Facebook will, will be able to go backwards due to regulation. So instead, they have to figure out how to navigate forward. Um, so I do think that they will have to alter their ad business and specifically their targeting business um, in order to accommodate their new privacy vision and to accommodate the fact that younger social users are looking for more private and ephemeral experiences. So by nature, if the users are changing behavior, Facebook is trying to accommodate that. They're attempting to predict how users are going to use social media. Mark Zuckerberg talks about instead of going from the open town hall to a more private living room conversation, they have to accommodate changing users' behavior, changing user behavior, which means also accommodating uh, how advertisers can reach these more private users. So I don't think it's a 18 months from now, we'll be back at square one situation. I think Facebook's feature functionality and offerings will have evolved to try to accommodate, again, the more private and ephemeral experiences that users crave, um, and they're going to have to adjust their advertising model accordingly. So as I sit in this chair, it's hard for me to see a world that doesn't have Facebook in it. But I think of the world geologically, 30 years ago, Facebook didn't exist. Are we are we heading towards a place where it's possible that Facebook doesn't exist as we know it, or or do you see this as just as a as a a type of evolution? As to your point to begin this thing, you said this is part of the story, not the end of the game. H how does this play out? Facebook isn't going anywhere soon. I think from a marketer's perspective, you're probably wondering now what. Uh, I think as a marketer, continue doing what you're doing. Um, if you're already active in social marketing, you know that social media moves incredibly fast. Um, Facebook isn't going to be any different. Um, I think marketers just need to brace themselves for very gradual shifts in user behavior, as we talked about earlier, towards more private experiences and more ephemeral experiences. Um, marketers should also brace themselves for constantly changing and new feature functionality rollouts, as they already do. Um, and then perhaps the diminished ad targeting abilities will, will hit close to home for many marketers um, and that targeting capabilities will evolve over time. So what will Facebook look like down the road? I think Facebook as an entity will still exist. It will just look different. Instead of it being this vast network and vast ecosystem of people um, as part of your Facebook friends or your Instagram followers or your WhatsApp connections, I think that your Facebook, Facebook Inc. ecosystem will look smaller, perhaps more intimate um, and more closed. Jesse, thank you so much for your time today. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. 
or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.